This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. High school graduation rates are climbing in virtually every city and state. Between 2011 and 2017, rates climbed nationwide by six percentage points to reach a high of 85% in 2017, the last year for which we have this information. This deep growth is all the more remarkable for it follows a 17-year period when the national graduation rate, the high school graduation rate, changed hardly at all. So why are students earning a high school diploma with substantially more frequency than just a few years ago? Are, are students working harder? Are teachers finding new techniques to engage students? Or are high school standards slipping and teacher expectations falling, making it easier to obtain a diploma? Well, a group of scholars at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University has just released a new report that sheds light on this topic and makes some key recommendations to state officials. Transparency rules require that I tell you that I am one of the members of the Hoover team, but the report itself has been prepared by Margaret Raymond, a senior research fellow at the Hoover Institution. To her friends, uh, Margaret Raymond is known as Mackie, and I'm delighted to have Mackie Raymond uh, with me here on the Education Exchange today. Thank you, Paul. Well, Mackie, uh, thanks for joining me on the Education Exchange. Your report makes a number of important policy recommendations, but the first question I want to ask you is the following. Uh, are these recent uh, improvements in the high school graduation rates real? Are students really learning more than ever before in our high schools? Well, Paul, that is really the crux question that led to this investigation and this uh, report from the Hoover Education Success Initiative. Uh, to answer your question, I'm going to give you three sets of numbers. The first are the NAEP, the National Assessment of Education Progress Report scores for fourth and eighth grade, which over the last 15 years have been essentially flat or slightly declining. The second is a series of 12th grade assessments that were truncated and ended uh, about six years ago that also showed that high school performance by 17-year-olds was uh, essentially flat. And these numbers ma did not mask uh, a deep gap between uh, white students and minority and poverty students whose graduation numbers are even lower. So the question is how do we have a, a 6 percent rise in the, in the high school graduation rate when all other indicators are that academic performance is essentially flat? And the answer to that is that there has been a great deal of pressure on education policymakers at the state level to show both politically and economically that the states are getting better in education and they've increased their graduation rates by a series of adjustments in the full set of requirements that students must meet in order to be granted So you think that it's really that there's been a change in the requirements that are out there that's, uh, that explains this and, and not that there's really no evidence that we have. I think the PISA data that just came out is consistent with what you just said as well. There's no improvement in student performance in, at age 15, so why are we seeing this, this success story? So, but, you know, what is the... What is the rule for what is a high school? What do you need to graduate from high school? I know in the old days we had the Carnegie unit and you had to have 16 Carnegie units to graduate from high school. 
So is it is that the same standard, or do we have this old Carnegie rule? And, and what is that Carnegie rule exactly? So let's start with the Carnegie unit itself. Uh, it's actually a college-based measure of course rigor that was used to try to establish equivalency of college and university courses. Its use was extrapolated to the high school level in an attempt to integrate high school credentialing into the college setting. Uh, what happens is a Carnegie unit represents a number of hours of student contact time that a teacher must have. And typically in a high school, it's 180 hours equals one Carnegie unit. Uh, so any teacher holding a class for 180 hours could be granting one Carnegie unit. That says nothing about the content of the courses that are being taught inside those classes. And so the problem that we see is that the dilution of content is, is rampant across the country. There are multiple levels of ninth grade or 10th grade math, and they don't cover the same material, and they don't cover the same pacing. So students can earn Carnegie units towards graduation, they can earn their credits and not have the full set of academic preparation that would be considered satisfying the learning standards for a high school degree. So um, does this vary from one state to another, or do all states have pretty much the same high school requirements? So the research that was done in support of this paper um, by three very talented authors whose papers are on our website uh, found that there's variation across the states, and they run from states that expect every student to meet a very rigorous college-ready curriculum in order to qualify for graduation, all the way to states that have essentially tiered performance requirements that will allow students to earn a high school degree uh, at various levels of preparation. So I've heard about these credit recovery courses because are they important for these rising graduation rates that students are now encouraged to recover the credit if they got an F in the course the first time around? So states have very different rules about how to count college recovery credit students in their denominator for high school graduation rates. The usual practice is if the student has already dropped out and they are re-entering a credit recovery program, they are not included as a graduating student. Uh, if they have just lost a few credits and they are in an accelerated program, they do count, and the content of those, those courses that they take is highly truncated. They are strictly uh, tailored to passing whatever the assessment is in a very rapid fire sort of memorization modality. And so students get the credit without actually learning the material. So let me ask you about the policy recommendations. What are your, what, what would you say is the most important policy recommendation that uh, has emerged from your analysis and research? So I have two of my top picks. Uh, the, the first one is, we have allowed elementary and secondary schools to perform at very, very low levels for decades, and we're not addressing the school quality program there. So it is inevitable that in many communities, the students that are entering high school are dramatically behind in their academic preparation for high school. We've got to take a look at that, and we've got to make sure that we are addressing the quality program from the very problem from the very beginning. So how do we do that? that that's a really important recommendation, but how do you get it done? 
So I think that there are a number of different practices that are already proven to be effective in allowing elementary and middle school students to learn at high levels. Part of it is expectation, part of it is teacher pedagogy. And we have proven methods. And so the question is what's preventing us from insisting that every school in the country be using effective, effective methods. Okay, so that's recommendation one. You said there were two. Sure. So I think the other one is that we need to move to a mastery-based way of assessing what students know. And that's very different from the time-based system that we currently have. I think we, we need to have both information on students and teachers and assessments that allow people to know exactly what students learn in a period of time and use that information in a continuous improvement uh, style in order to make sure that students don't get out of high school until they're ready to go on to other things. So does that mean that there should be an examination at the end of each course? I didn't quite see that recommendation in the report itself, but it was implied by some of the uh, points that are made by the report. So what, what's your view on that? Are these end-of-course examinations that are external to the classroom that somebody outside the school is uh, grading. Is that, is that one of the recommendations? So we do talk about end-of-course exams. Um, they have, because of the problem of course dilution, the, the expense of independent assessments for every single course has gone through the roof. And so the problem is both a, a cost of doing the assessment in a customized way for every single course and the problem that the courses are being diluted. I'm very much in favor of, of having uh, frequent and rigorous assessment of what kids know, not as a punitive uh, external accountability kind of a thing for the student, but even as a formative process as they're going through the material. I don't think that students should be encouraged to go on and, and take on additional material until they've shown mastery of the earlier stuff. So all that's very interesting, but people are going to say if, if these recommendations are put into place, we're going to have a lower graduation rate and a lot of students who expect to graduate from high school are going to find it difficult to do so and our graduation rate is going to go down and there's going to be a, a, a political backlash. I think it is completely anticipated that there would be a reduction in the graduation rate if we get serious about making sure that kids are ready to graduate. I think it's a short-run phenomenon particularly if we've taken care of these other two things that I've just mentioned. Uh, and the better part of this is that the students beyond high school are going to be much more successful in their post-secondary pursuits. We have a huge remediation problem in higher education. We have a huge dropout problem in career and technical training after high school. And we have uh, a really dismal set of, of training requirements for students going into occupations in military. So I think if we, can, if we can improve the readiness of students as they come out of high school in order to be ready to take on uh, really rigorous post-secondary activities, that short-run dip will be paid off in very short order by higher qualified graduates and more productivity of, from those students over time. Well, you mentioned career and technical education, and that is included in your report. What are your recommendations with respect to uh, career and technical education? Let me ask you specifically, the president has just announced, or the White House has just announced that the new budget that they have proposed to Congress is calling for a major expansion of uh, money for uh, CTE, as this is called, uh, career and technical education. Uh, so uh, uh, is that really uh, meeting the recommendations in this report? 
So uh, I, I was actually glad to see that there's an increase in funding in CTE. Uh, I'm not excited about the fact that that's uh, done against a backdrop of an 8% overall reduction in federal funding for, for education in K-12 generally. Uh, but I do think that the career and technical education will play an increasingly important role in the education of, of American high school students. The challenge that, that CTE presents today is that there's very little coherence in the offerings for career and technical education in most places. Um, it's difficult to put together um, a series of courses that include both some academic training and some either career exploration or job skill development uh, that can be coherent, can be sequential, and can leave students with significant and material progress towards a vocation after uh, after high school. The fact that 85% of high school students, regardless of their degree, believe that they will eventually want to do higher education anyway, the idea that we're going to have career and technical education be a lower track of academic preparation does nobody any good, especially if the courses are smattering and not connected. Well, I think what you're saying here is that we need to uh, better articulate career and technical education in junior colleges, community colleges, uh, with the career and technical education in our high schools so that you can begin it in high school and then progress uh, as you reach the age of 18 and, and move beyond. So that's certainly one of the pathways that's worth uh, strengthening as we move forward with CTE. Um, the most successful programs that we were able to identify and look at actually are employer uh, are really focused on on collaborations with with key employers in the state or in the community in which um, the the school is located. Uh, that provides a really uh, pragmatic and grounded focus in what students ought to be able to do in order to have options when they graduate. And so. Good, good participation from the local employment community, great involvement of uh, post-secondary training opportunities, whether they are job training programs or community colleges and junior colleges, and, and a continuous focus on making sure that the student is actually getting education that is practical and valuable to them when they leave school. So Those aren't the there examples of that out there already of uh, industry working very closely with local high schools to, to uh, prepare students for work in their industry? Yeah, Paul, that's right. There are some really great models. Uh, the problem is that they are not by any chance a strong proportion of all the models that we can see. That we can see. So one of the criticisms of this approach is th that the O industry is simply trying to get cheap labor and they are going to have the high schools do the training for them. <clears throat> How do you respond to that criticism? So I think there have been multiple examples where that has been the case, where they're just looking for uh, a cheap source of labor, uh, custom trained to their exact specifications, but that don't generalize to anything else. I think uh, state education agencies and school district officials uh, ought to have a broader uh, commitment to their students and their students' long-range learning opportunities and would be guarded against that. Uh, there are a number of other programs where employers are training people for uh, for first jobs after, after high school, where the first job actually is a gateway to other career opportunities, both within the company and outside the company. And those are the kinds of models that I think we, we can celebrate and point to and encourage other communities to adopt. Well, you know, these uh, recommendations seem so sensible and straightforward that uh, 
I, I always wonder why they haven't already been adopted, but where do you expect to see political resistance to these ideas? Well, I think there are there are a number of fo uh, of forces that are at work here. I think uh, governors are under a tremendous amount of pressure to to prove in that they are uh, they are leading states that have vibrant labor forces in order to be able to attract business to locate there. I think uh, school districts and state education agencies are under political pressure from state legislatures to. Uh, produce statistics that are attractive uh, for for uh, economic development opportunities. I think there is a great pressure from within the education um, sector that uh, taking students who are significantly behind in their in their academic preparation uh, that we have to do something that is uh, a education light solution for them uh, and. Part of that, I believe, is compassionate, uh, and part of that is is just the the pragmatic of not being able to do eight years of of education in four years of high school. We need different kinds of thinking and different kinds of solutions uh, brought to the table in order to reverse this trend of diluting what the diploma represents, because it's not serving students well. It's not serving higher education or, or higher uh, post-secondary training and it's really not uh, it's not getting students or or the institution of education itself uh, the kind of performance that it deserves so what are you doing to make sure these uh, recommendations get in the hands of policymakers and so that state officials begin to uh, take uh, take these uh, innovations uh, seriously well one of the things about the Hoover education success initiative is that the Publication of one of our reports is not the end of the exercise. Uh, there is a that just kicks off a second phase, in which we are uh, very committed to dissemination and active consulting. We are blessed to have um, a group of state policy leaders from state legislatures, from state education agencies, from state boards of education, uh, and state advocacy organizations come together in our practitioner council, and. They are our, our guides and our counselors in terms of how best to move the findings that we have from these papers into active debate, active action, and policymaking in the various states around the country. Uh, we have, for the release of the report that's happening tomorrow, we have 150 different uh, federal, state, and local organizations that uh, are already teed up to get this report with a plan for active follow-up. So I think the, uh, the answer is we know that this is important work. We know that it needs to be uh, actively worked with in partnership with state and local educators, and we have a plan for doing that. Well, thank you, Mackie, for uh, sharing these thoughts with me on the eve of the release of the report. I have been speaking with Margaret Raymond, a senior research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Thank you, Mackie, for joining me. Thanks for having me. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time. Thank you for joining me.